Today's philosopher, it was said, wrote a book, quote, forged from hell by the devil himself, end quote. He committed abominable heresies and monstrous deeds. He rejected the idea that miracles were real, insisted that our souls were not immortal, declared that Jewish law was unnecessary and without merit, and proclaimed that the Bible was not the work of divine authorship, but instead written by the whims of human writers. He also dragged philosophy into the modern era and espoused many of the liberal ideas most of us take for granted these days. Freedom of worship, of expression, of speech. He's one of the most consequential thinkers of the modern age and was turfed out of the Jewish community with such vehemence that nearly 400 years later, people still keep their distance. Today we're in Amsterdam in the 1600s, one of the great cosmopolitan centers of Europe then, in finance, commerce, politics, culture, religion, and philosophy. We're talking about the guy at the center of it all, Baruch Spinoza, the philosopher who launched the modern age. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and this is Jew Ought to Know. <laughs> I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. On July 27, 1656, in Amsterdam, Congregation Talmud Torah placed an excommunication upon the 23-year-old Baruch Spinoza. It's a fantastic bit of writing. Quote, By decree of the angels and by command of the holy men, we excommunicate, expel, curse, and damn Baruch de Espinoza, with the consent of God, blessed be he, and with the consent of the entire holy congregation. The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smote against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him, and the Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven. We warn that none may contact him orally or in writing, nor do him any favor, not stay under the same roof with him, nor read any paper he made or wrote. End quote. So on the one hand, that's pretty bad. On the other hand, you know, it sounds remarkably similar to things my ex-girlfriends have written about me. Congregation Talmud Torah may have condemned Spinoza, but they didn't list the reasons why, other than vague references to his evil opinions and acts and abominable heresies and their having been convinced of the truth of this matter. Excommunication in the Jewish community, which is called harem, is not usually this extreme. It often takes the form of suspension for certain infractions for a certain period of time, after which you can reform your ways and return to the community. Whatever he did, you can perhaps forgive the Jewish community of Amsterdam. They were on edge. These were Portuguese Jews, descendants of the refugees from the traumatic Spanish and Portuguese expulsion of the 1490s. Their ancestors had been forced to live publicly as Christians and covertly as Jews until they made their way to Amsterdam and began building a community there. The Spinoza scholar Rebecca Goldstein writes that, quote, The relatively liberal city of Amsterdam provided the conditions for their reconnecting to a Judaism that most of them barely knew. Brutal forces of history had given the community its distinctive tone, ambitious for the material trappings of middle-class stability, and yet skittish, anxious enviably accomplished and cosmopolitan, and yet filled with religious intensity, confusion, disillusion, and messianic yearning, end quote. So this was not a community that would have felt secure about dissent within its ranks. 
Judging by Spinoza's later works, perhaps he was vocal about his extreme views even at an early age. Other scholars have speculated that the harem had to do with his business practices. He was a lensmaker by trade and a skilled one at that, in high demand in both the Jewish and non-Jewish communities. Whatever he did, his Jewish community didn't want him to reform his ways. They just wanted him gone. And so did Spinoza. He walked away permanently. He never again participated in the Jewish life of Amsterdam. Indeed, he was even buried in a churchyard. But here's where it gets interesting, because Spinoza didn't leave Judaism and take up Christianity. He instead contented himself with being a secular citizen of the Dutch Republic. At a time when your religious identity, and therefore your communal association, really defined your place in society, this was downright irrational. As Rebecca Goldstein writes, quote, Part of the horror he invoked throughout Europe derived from the radical stance he assumed simply by pursuing a life with no religious affiliation. End quote. And so one of the provocative questions to consider about Spinoza is to what extent he was a Jewish philosopher. Does he belong in this podcast season on 10 Jewish philosophers you ought to know? He was tossed outside the Jewish community at the age of 23, never to return. His intellectual pursuits utterly overturned the religious philosophy that had stood for centuries, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, and in all other respects. While our other philosophers have insisted on a special place for Jews and Judaism within their philosophical systems, Spinoza didn't. And yet, while it seems a light question of no particular significance, it's actually not. For as Rebecca Goldstein again writes, quote, Spinoza probes a historical sore spot for Jews. What does Jewishness consist in? Is it theological, biological, ethical, cultural? End quote. So Spinoza's very existence as a philosopher raises questions about Jewish belonging, distinctiveness, identity, and faith. Questions still utterly relevant today. Baruch Spinoza broadly did two things that we're talking about today. He upended 1,500 years of philosophy by severing the connection between reason and revelation, which had begun with Philo of Alexandria way back in the first century. Spinoza didn't really invent new philosophy so much as return us to the Greek origins. And the second thing he did was lay the foundations of what ended up becoming core democratic principles, like freedom of worship and speech and expression. These percolated upwards through social and political philosophy, and we of course today recognize them as perhaps the core features of most Western societies. But let's start with philosophy, and let's go back for a minute to Philo of Alexandria from the second episode of this season. Philo was looking at two different essential bodies of knowledge to explain the world, derive a truth, and teach us how to live good lives. Two bodies of knowledge that seemed irreconcilable. You had the Greek system, which relied on reason, on intellect and observable physical phenomena. And then you had religious revelation, the word of God recorded in texts called scripture, which in Philo's time meant the Hebrew Bible. Later, of course, you would get things like the New Testament and the Quran. Rather than keep those threads separate, Philo brought Greek reason together with religious revelation. This meant, for example, using a rational approach to reading the Torah, using reason and logic, Greek ideas, to parse the stories and teachings for meaning. 
Coming at the beginning of the Christian era, Philo set the foundation for what became known as religious philosophy, which more or less all philosophers accepted for the next 1600 years, until Spinoza. The great scholar Harry Wolfson writes that religious philosophy's core doctrine here is, quote, the belief that over and above and beyond the aggregate of things which make up our physical universe, there is something unlike the universe, end quote. That something which is unlike the universe is God. And this is an example of the kind of unification of reason and revelation that Philo was talking about. Greek philosophy reasoned its way to the existence of God. So too, of course, did the religious texts. What's key here is the notion that God is independent of the world. God is separate. Now, it doesn't sound like much, but it has huge implications. A God that is separate from the universe and its natural laws is a God that can act outside those laws, doing things like, say, creating the laws in the first place and giving the universe order and purpose. God can cause something to happen by upending the laws of nature, what we call a miracle. God can intervene directly in our lives and can make choices, such as choosing humanity as God's special creation. In his most famous work, called Ethics, Spinoza threw out all of this. He basically stripped religious philosophy of its religiousness, its philoness, and returned to the Greek approach of pure reason. He didn't deny the existence of God, quite the opposite, in fact. But Spinoza's God isn't separate from the universe. For Spinoza, using reason, you can't have something that exists outside the framework of what's in the universe and how it works. So, for instance, the religious philosophers say that, okay, the Hebrew Bible reveals that God created the universe. Therefore, God existed before the universe existed. Thus, logically, God must be separate from and independent of the universe itself. Spinoza said, no, that's not right. God can't be separate from the universe as it exists. The laws of nature are absolute and eternal. They apply to everything. Nothing can be outside it or change it. Don't picture God as some kind of being, but as a substance. The substance of the universe itself. The substance from which everything flows. Again, Spinoza is taking us back to the pre-Philo era, when we're just working with Greek philosophy, not with religious revelation. And so why this is a big deal, certainly so in 1600s Europe, is that Spinoza essentially closes off the fundamental underpinnings of religion. If God is a substance of the universe, not separate from it, then you can't have miracles, since miracles are things that exist outside the laws of nature. Miracles upset established order of the universe, which has existed forever, and in Spinoza's hyper-rational worldview, that just can't be. Miracles aren't the only religious value that Spinoza demolishes. He also uproots one of the key promises of religion, the immortality of the soul. One of the key premises of religion is immortality. The idea that your soul is distinct from your body, in one way or another, either rising to heaven or descending to hell. After death, an essential part of you carries on, some form of consciousness or shadow that is demonstrably yours. But Spinoza mostly rejected this entire concept. Again, he appeals to the logic of reason, not the truths of revelation. 
In an ordered physical world with fixed laws of nature, the human body is just a physical form that disappears with death. Yet there is an interesting twist that comes with the application of pure reason. For in an ordered universe in which all things are the essence of and flow from God, it stands to reason that our thoughts, our intellect, must also in some physical way belong to this universe. Spinoza wrote, quote, The human mind cannot be absolutely destroyed with the body, but something of it remains which is eternal, end quote. Spinoza said that this remaining eternal piece is your intellect. Quote, the essence of the mind consists of knowledge. Therefore, the more things the mind knows, the greater is the part of it which remains. End quote. In other words, when you die, there is this portion of your intellect which gets returned to the whole, like a book being returned to the library. The whole it's being returned to is God. But as Harry Wolfson writes, quote, this individual immortality belongs to man not by grace, but by nature, end quote. That is, for Spinoza, immortality is a logical part of natural forces, not some extra special state bestowed upon us by God's blessing. So where this is all going is a rejection of organized religion and the kind of thinking that it imposes on its followers. The Spinoza scholar Stephen Nadler writes that for Spinoza, quote, to believe that there's an eternal heaven in which you'll be rewarded or an eternal hell where you'll be punished simply gives rise to superstitious beliefs. Your life in this world will be governed by irrational hopes and fears for what's going to happen in the next world. That's a life of bondage and servitude, end quote. Bondage and servitude, that is, to the religious authorities, and I'm talking to you, clerics of 17th century Amsterdam. Spinoza said that all these religions, all their texts and rules and rituals and traditions, all of it is just superstition. Oh sure, organized religion has some good ideas, and some of these rules are good to follow, and it's no problem if people find comfort in this. But religions are just unnecessarily dividing us, insisting on differences and confusion where there are none. If you want to find comfort and happiness in this world, he said, you just need to apply pure reason to your knowledge of God. Use your intellect to overcome the negative emotions that are dragging you down. Remember, he believed that everything is part of the ordered physical universe, and that includes emotions. Just like in physics, then, by his logic, emotional forces can be overcome with a force that is stronger. That force is the force of the mind, of the intellect. Quote, he who rightly knows that all things follow from the necessity of divine nature and happen according to the eternal laws and rules of nature will surely find nothing worthy of hate, mockery, or disdain. Instead, he will strive, as far as human virtue allows, to act well, as they say, and rejoice. End quote. So if you're one of these 17th century religious authorities, you can see how Spinoza is exceptionally dangerous. He systematically dismantles everything that religious philosophy, in particular Christian thought, had built up over the last 1600 years. Even the Bible was reduced to a collection of inspirational moral tales written by a bunch of different authors, none of whom were actual scientists or philosophers and therefore had no particular authority. This was all a radical, terrifying proposition at a time when even in Amsterdam, the most liberal corner of Europe, such a notion would utterly upend personal identity, social organization, and of course, political power. And here again, Spinoza went further. 
Free from the encumbrances of religious philosophy, Spinoza's rational perspective extended into the political sphere. For him, reason required the freedom of expression to pursue the boundaries of your own intellect. It was not a huge leap from this to the foundational ideas of contemporary democracy. In 1870, Spinoza wrote the Treatise on Theology and Politics, which he published anonymously to avoid hate tweets from the powers that be. His premise was the necessity for the freedom of thought, speech, and worship. He didn't like organized religion as the social and political construct of society. He didn't like these religious authorities pushing irrational doctrines on people and therefore competing for their loyalty in what should be a secular state. Spinoza worried that the result would be the people of Amsterdam holding more loyalty to the Pope in Rome than to the secular authorities of the Dutch Republic. Somewhat ironically, then, Spinoza argued that organized religion should ultimately be under the auspices of the state sovereign, in which the sovereign would be the one to judge whether a religion was going too far. This was the way to ensure that everyone was able to believe in whatever they wanted, certainly so in the privacy of their own homes. Spinoza wrote, quote, Freedom of thought and speech not only may, without prejudice to piety and the public peace, be granted, but also may not, without danger to piety and the public peace, be withheld. In other words, freedom of thought and speech were necessary to serve the needs of both the general public and the various religious traditions, ensuring that everyone wasn't subject to whichever religion was in power. Spinoza wrote that, quote, The less freedom of judgment is granted to men, the further are they removed from the most natural state, and consequently, the more repressive the regime, end quote. Everyone, he said, should be able to think whatever they want and say whatever they think. To guarantee this newfangled concept of free speech and expression, Spinoza did envision some limits. The state shouldn't allow speech that would incite violence or encourage what the scholar Stephen Nadler says is speech that, quote, would serve to undermine the authority of the sovereign or the social contract, end quote. It's unclear to what extent Spinoza thought that the sovereign ought to be able to decide what kinds of speech count as undermining him and therefore needed to be limited. But a few constitutional scholars are hearing foreshadow of Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, that the First Amendment does not protect shouting fire in a crowded theater, it's all along the same thread of free expression that Spinoza articulated. A few years after Spinoza's death, another famous philosopher came to town, an Englishman named John Locke. Locke soaked up the free-thinking Spinoza's ideas about liberal government, adding them into the mix of his own theories on the social contract and democratic governance, and the right of men to, as he put it, pursue life, liberty, and happiness. That found its way to Thomas Jefferson, who put it and other ideas into the United States' Declaration of Independence. And then you have the First Amendment of the Constitution, enshrining the separation of church and state. So on the one hand, we have this direct line from Spinoza to Locke to Thomas Jefferson. But on the other hand, it's unclear to what extent the American founding fathers were influenced by Spinoza, or even if they had read him much at all. But even if they weren't, 
Spinoza's fundamental value system was part of the foundational idea of the United States. Stephen Nadler sums up Spinoza here. Quote, Religion should set no bounds to what science and philosophy can achieve. But then again, neither should philosophy and science be used to determine what religion is about. They are separate spheres. End quote. For Spinoza, the intellect and our ability to rationalize and apply reason, these were the keys to the good life. Spinoza said that, quote, Without intelligence there is not rational life, and things are only good insofar as they aid man in his enjoyment of the intellectual life, which is defined by intelligence. Contrarywise, whatsoever things hinder man's perfection of his reason and his capability to enjoy the rational life are alone called evil, end quote. This gets you to what he called the knowledge of God, that would, in the end, give us the peace and purpose that we seek. Use the power of your mind to conquer your emotions, to reason your way towards justice, charity, and happiness. Such a life, he said, brings joy. As the scholar Rebecca Goldstein writes, quote, Spinoza placed all his faith in the powers of reason, his own and ours, end quote. For Spinoza, the man who denied the immortality of the soul except perhaps for a few bits of the knowledge you had obtained in this life, he held that when you die, you die, and that's the end. He himself died in 1677 at the age of 44 of tuberculosis. Let's not subvert his free-thinking radicalism by insisting on the presence somewhere of his soul. But to the extent that his knowledge may have continued on past his bodily life, returned in some way to the divine physical manifestation of the universe, we can be grateful that this substance, what Spinoza knew as God, has continued to share it with all of us. Last year, in 2021, an Israeli philosopher named Yitzhak Melamed requested permission to research in the archives of the Portuguese synagogue of Amsterdam in support of a film he was making on Spinoza. Not only did the rabbi of the synagogue refuse permission, but he banned the scholar from even coming into the synagogue. The rabbi wrote to Melamed that the Jewish community, quote, excommunicated Spinoza and his writings with the severest possible ban, a ban that remains in force and cannot be rescinded. You have devoted your life to the study of Spinoza's banned works and the development of his ideas. End quote. In 2012 and again in 2015, a movement was made to formally lift the harem, the ban on Spinoza, but each time the Jewish community's leadership refused. Spinoza's detractors knew what they were doing back then, said the rabbis, and his ideas are anyway still antagonistic today. Many of you have written to me over the years remarking about how uncontroversial this podcast is, even perhaps especially when it comes to modern Israel. So here's hoping that at some point I will do or say something that 366 years from now, some professor will be excoriated for daring to visit the website to download my episodes. So last episode, we delved into the world of mystery and mysticism with Isaac Luria, and this episode, we tacked in the complete opposite direction with Spinoza. 
Next episode, we're dipping back into the spiritual realm and the juggernaut of Judaism that suddenly appeared on the flat plains of Eastern Europe in the mid-1700s. It became known as Hasidism, and we'll be talking about its founder, the Baal Shem Tov. My website is jewidontknow.com, and my email is jewidontknowpodcast at gmail.com. Big, big thanks to the wonderful donors who have been supporting the podcast this season, and before, of course, too. I really deeply appreciate your support, and you can see your name up in lights at the website. Talk to you all next time. The Heathrow. See you later. <laughs>